0: Howdy, everybody. We just got home from Nashville. Someone's wondering if we were going to sing country music today. So that was the best I have. We had such a good time, though. And um, we missed you, though. It's so good to be here and to be back with our family. We love you guys. Um, I want to tell you about some really cool stuff that's been going on. It's so nice to see some faces, Um, and as we're looking at faces and we're looking at people that are masked, I just wanna remind us about the gracious community that we have been and I know that we will continue to be. When someone is masked, it does not mean that they mean mean that they need to be educated or that they haven't been vaccinated. This is a choice that we all want to be able to give you the freedom to make for yourself. And so we are just gonna leave judgment at the door and um, do the best that we can to love each other really well. I wanna talk to those of you at home right now for just a minute. We have heard on several different occasions through the grapevine, always, the grapevine, super cool, right? Um, But that some of you are at home and you feel like everybody's been back in church, and I haven't. And when I come, everyone will know it. That is not the case. We have new people coming every single week. We are not keeping track of who is here, who isn't here. Um, And so if you are in that space where you're like, ah, it feels like I've been gone a long time, We've all been gone a long time, and we all miss you. And we are ready to welcome you back into this space as soon as you're ready. And we understand that with our change to our masking guidelines, that might make you a little more hesitant. And that's okay too. Stay at home and be with us in person or online as long as you need to be. We are just trying to journey through this the best way that we can. And so um, we miss you, though. And that is not a guilt ridden miss you. It is a legitimate, can't wait to see your face when it works for you again. Um, Okay, I feel like there was one more thing, but I'm kind of lost now. (laughs) Uh, We had an incredible night on Thursday night. We had our kids and the village programs um, end of year party. And I loved seeing the way that many of you showed up and just poured yourself out on behalf of kids. Many of you brought cupcakes. I think that nearly every family went home with a full thing of cupcakes or a complete cake. I am so sorry, parents. So sorry. Um, Unfortunately, our family didn't get one. And so, a bummer. <laughs> okay, sorry, that was an evil laugh. But um, one way that the kids showed their appreciation to Trevor and all that he has done this year was to pie him in the face at the end of our <laughs> time together. And he was an incredible sport. Um, I also want to point out Luis, 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 yeah, Louis, but what is it? Well, yeah, let's do it right, Luis. <laughs> I mean, and then I'll call it you that wrong, and I'll call your son by the wrong name as well. So here we go, I'll just ask you every time. It's like 50 First Dates, that movie, right? Always forgetting. Um, anyway, he was the MC of our cakewalk, and it was awesome. It was fun to see the kids like ripping through the parking lot to find the 30 chalked off spaces after we had had them on laminated paper and all the kids were sliding and hitting the concrete. So we learned. We learned, it's good good learning. The first time through something is always the hardest and it only gets better from there. Um, but we ended our year in a big way and we are just so thankful for the way that all of you have contributed time, energy, and finances so that we could open those doors. This past week we had a family from the village that was connected to us through Cedar Way. Um, that is our um, partner that we, we partner with the elementary school to help there. Um, and her mom passed away and on Wednesday. And we walked through that with the friends. There's not a dad in the picture. There's no immediate family. Um, and so CPS was able to place her with her friends. And um, that was really hard. And the one thing that she said, I just want to go to the carnival. And so she got to come and be a part of that carnival and forget about the worries of her week a little bit for a day. And um, I just love that many of you knew her story and you loved her really, really well. And just to see this reality of love lived um, happening among us is so cool. And so thank you for being a part of that. Um, one of the families who doesn't go to brickview, they were sitting at the tables, we were having dinner together, and they saw the back side of our sign and they're like, "Is the name of your church Love lived?" <laughs> and I said, "No, we just put that on the back of the sign so that when we head out of our parking lot, we remember what we're about and how we walk out of this place, that, that our meeting with Jesus here inspires us to go and to take that love to our community so just some cool conversations that got to happen it was a beautiful time and sad to watch that chapter of our lives kind of come to a close and also relieved at the same time Amen, teachers out there. Emily, you feel me, don't you? (laughs) All right. Um, We have soccer club coming up. And um, if our school party was any indication of the energy that will come from being able to serve kids, I am so excited for August 2nd through the 6th. Um, If you're excited about that, too, and you want to help in some way, you do not have to coach. There are all sorts of behind-the-scenes scenes, things that we need. We have a little store. We need field managers. Um, We need just runners that help us get water bottles to kids, Um, just real simple stuff. So if you want to be a part of that, we would love to have you. And the way that you do that is you sign up to help on your communication card. But we also want you to invite friends that you have to come. Yes, we're getting full. That's super exciting, but we still want you to bring your friends to that, and so you go to brookviewchurch.com forward slash soccer, and you'll be able to register for that, um, that week of fun that we're going to have. I mean, I feel like we went on vacation, and then we came back, and it's like, let's go, because I have so many announcements. Um, We are going to have like a another party why not have another party right you feel me yeah so we traditionally do ignite um, about three times a year we have not been able to do that in this season but we are going to um, coming up on june 27th and we're just gonna have a party we're gonna start with dinner in the parking lot for an hour before then we'll shift into this space here for our meeting together and we call it Brickview's family meeting because it's like where you talk about the real stuff like what's going on and things like how are our finances and that's not a huge portion of it but we like you to know and to be informed about what it looks like to be part of this family and so we want you to come to that and then afterwards we have a bunch of fire pits and we're going to do s'mores and fill your belly with lots of things you don't want to have in it so you might your choices, kids. just going to forewarn you, Alexa. S'mores, you probably only want two, maybe three. Okay, we'll talk about, yeah, right? Yeah, you're like, what? Are you kidding? We need more than that. Or we can have three? Jen just said I could have three. (laughs) Sorry, I should move along. Okay, but you're invited to any part of that that makes sense for you. If you're like, I can only come to the fire pits, come to the fire pits. If you can only come for dinner, come for dinner. If you want to come for the whole thing, great. We'd love to have you too. We are going to have you RSVP for that so that we can put people in here um, in a strategic way that makes sense for that meeting. Um, And so that sign up is in the same place that you sign up for church every week. You'll just kind of scroll down and you'll see kind of that flame thing ignite because we're going to get ignited. That was really cheesy. (laughs) (laughs) But a great segue into July 3rd. Okay, so 4th of July happens on a Sunday morning. Well, the 4th of July is all day, but church would happen on Sunday morning on July 4th. And we want you to be able to be with your family and your friends um, and to be able to invest in them. But we also want you to be able to do church. And so um, we are going to do a worship night that evening here from 6 o'clock, 6.30 on Saturday night, on Saturday night, July 3rd at 6.30, we are going to have a one-hour worship night. Your kids are invited to that, but we'll also have a movie next door as well. And then we'll be doing s'mores and marshmallows in the parking lot. Again, might as well put those fires to good use. So like every single week, we're going to have a fire somehow. So we're going to go two in a row, and we'll see what July 11th looks like. I'm just kidding. Um, you do not, do you have to sign up for that? Oh, hmm, Jason says no, so come, maybe. We'll get back to you on that. We didn't have a staff meeting this week, can you tell? (laughs) Um, Okay. Last thing, we always love it when you fill out your communication card. It's a great way to respond to anything that we've talked about, signing up for things, things you have more questions about, um, prayers if you need them. We have a team of people that pray for you throughout the week. And so um, that's it. I'm getting out of here.
1: Morning. Morning, you guys. Jen said we didn't have a staff meeting last week. Guys, we haven't had a staff meeting for a month. <laughs> Cause we were in Nashville, right? We to into line dance, which I understand. You just got to hold your belt buckle if you're a dude. You just kind of. <laughs> so I got that down. You guys, it's so good to see some faces. And oh man, all right. Well, today we're launching into something new. Um, Sometimes in our culture, you will hear people say something like this. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not interested in organized religion. Now, I, I am interested in, in spirituality. I'm, I'm a spiritual person, love spirituality, but I'm just not into organized religion. Now, today we're going to begin a series that will kind of take us all the way through the summer And we're going to be looking at various teachings and various examples of Jesus. And so we're calling this series, The Way of Jesus. But today, as we get this kicked off, we're going to look at some of Jesus' thoughts about organized religion. Okay, and this comes from Matthew 23, verses 1 to 12. And so to start, we're going to read the entire passage because I want you to get all of it in context. And then we're going to come back and kind of walk through it. Point by point. But as as we read his words together here in a minute, I want you to filter what he's saying through this question. What does Jesus think of organized religion? Okay, it's actually somewhat complex. Here we go. Matthew 23, starting with verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, okay, the religious leaders of his day, They sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on, the gar- on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. Speaking to his disciples now, Jesus says, But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Have you ever been hurt by a pastor or a church leader, or a church. Maybe for, maybe like you, you got to know the pastor actually off stage, behind the scenes, and it turned out they were very different in private. And so you just kind of walk, walked away hurt and disillusioned. Or, or maybe for you it wasn't a, a close encounter. It was the dramatic fall of yet another celebrity pastor gone viral, which is fast becoming an American pastime, right? household name pastors turn out to be the proverbial, in Jesus' language, wolf in sheep's clothing. Okay, here's here's a hypothetical. Please don't answer this one. Have you ever been hurt by me? Like something I said or did to you or or to our church? Or maybe something I, I, I didn't do, something that you felt like I should do for you or for the church but just didn't? Because here's the thing, guys, if you've been around here very long, I'm sure I've let you down a time or two or a thousand. Now, I, but please, I am not asking you to, like, inform me by emailing me a list <laughs> of all your grievances. Ignorance is bliss for me at this point. Um, and honestly, I, I'm not that ignorant. Because this has been one of the most challenging seasons of ministry that I could ever imagine. And so I am not asking you to air out all of your disappointments in me. I'm just asking you to honestly face the pain that pastors, that those we look to to lead us and guide us into deeper life with God often cause, more, cause harm and at times more harm than good. We, we live in a time of widespread decline in faith in Jesus and in the church. Like every year, we're told that every year, millions of millennials walk away from the church and millions more from Gen Z were never in the church to begin with. Now, please note, this is like a Western phenomenon, not a global one. The the church of Jesus is actually exploding all over the globe, in particular with young people and women and people of color. This is primarily an issue here in America, and throughout Europe. Now, some of the critique of the church, I think, is it's perception more than reality. Some of it. I mean, for some of it, it's just like the millennial snowflake thing. You guys know about the millennial snowflake thing? Are you serious? Well, that's it, right there. I... I thought you were a Gen Xer like me, apparently you're a millennial. That's it. Don't hurt our feelings. I'm special. I'm great. And everything I do is great. That's the millennial snowflake. I'm unique. Right? Okay. Sheesh. That was a tangent. I thought thought that was a term that people knew. It's almost as bad as the boomer snowflake. Oh, the boomer snowflake. Oh. Are you thinking I'm a boomer? (laughs) Whoa. That hurts my feelings. I'm special and unique. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so some of this really is, some of this whole, it's like perception and, and not reality. Um, and some of it is just like this anti-authoritarianism that is just becoming rampant in Western, Western culture. Uh, these days, the, the phrase spiritual abuse, it gets thrown around a lot. And as a pastor, I will sometimes hear that accusation against another pastor of another church. And so I'm like, well, okay, that's terrible. So I start to ask some questions. And pretty soon I realize, oh, wait, What, what you're calling spiritual abuse was someone challenging you to move away from selfishness and towards serving others. Or you were doing something really, really unhealthy in your life and they loved you too much to not say something. So there's, there's all sorts of reasons a church or church leaders can get a bad rap. And a lot of it's just really like clickbaity stuff. Now, unfortunately, we, we tend to hear about every single pastor gone wrong, but we don't ever hear about the tens of thousands of men and women who serve and love well over decades. So not all criticism of churches and its leaders is fair and justified, but still, like, if you nuance it out, it's really all, not all that pretty to look at. People are deeply hurt by pastors and by church leaders every day. And the the hard thing about that is when we're hurt by a pastor, it's like we're hurt at the deepest level of of who we are. I, I would put it in the same category as like a father wound or a mother wound, right? It's a deep place in us. Like there's something extra painful about being hurt by someone that is supposed to love us and protect us. It's being wounded by the ones that you're supposed to trust. But this issue of spiritual leaders doing harm, this is not a new thing at all. It goes all the way back to years well before Jesus. And in a time where disillusionment with pastors and churches and organized religion is so, so common, I think that the words of Jesus that we just read have a ton to say to us. So let's kind of work back through this thought by thought. Verse 1, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and, and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Okay, a little background. That, that phrase, Moses' seat, was, was actually a literal chair in the synagogue. And the rabbi would, would teach from it. But Jesus is also using it here as a metaphor. The, the Jewish teachers, in a way, were just a, a continued like, representation of Moses. Like Moses, they taught people the scriptures. They taught people how to walk with God. And the scriptures were and still are complex enough and ancient enough that we need people with expertise to interpret them and explain them to some degree. Like, literally, what I'm doing for you right now. Like, just so you know, I I spent hours and hours in today's passage. Not to mention years studying in grad school for pastors, they call that seminary. And then years reading books and listening to all kinds of sermons and studying theology and having complex conversations with other pastors and leaders and theologians. Okay, see, my job is to do what you don't have time for. And then to help you understand and apply the scriptures. And just so we're clear, Jesus is not against that. He's not against teachers of scripture. He's not even against, quote, organized church. I mean, think about Jesus. Jesus was actually highly involved in organized church. In his day, they called it synagogue. He went every single Sabbath. He was a rabbi. He was a teacher of Scripture, and he trained his disciples to be teachers and to be leaders. Like, his beef with the religious leaders was not that they held authority, and his beef was not primarily what they were teaching. His beef was that they were not practicing what they were preaching. And so next comes a few uh, examples to illustrate what he's talking about. And can I just say, you guys... This is really awkward for a pastor to teach on. Yeah. It really is. And in reading through this and walking through this, it was just like, oh, oh. It just reminds me of the passage in James where it says, you know, few of you should, should aspire to be teachers because teachers are held to a higher standard. <laughs> like, whew. Okay, all right. Okay, so this is really important stuff. So here we go. Jesus next says this in his critique of the Pharisees and teachers of the law. He says, They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Now, Jesus was most likely referring to what's called the Jewish Mishnah, which was uh, a group of rabbinic teachings that developed and was collected together over time. It became a, a complex legal code of over 1,500 extra commands on top of the hundreds of commands in what we call the Old Testament. And it put them on equal footing with Scripture. And I think it likely started out well-intentioned, right? I mean, it's like they were wrestling with questions. They wanted to know stuff like, if the Scripture says to rest on the Sabbath, what does that mean? I mean, how would people live that out? If the Scripture says to keep yourself pure How how would you go about practicing that? Like, it began as an attempt to figure out, how do we obey Scripture? How do we obey the commands of God? How do we live in a way that honors God and leads to human flourishing? But over centuries, it turned into this incredibly just rigid legalistic headache. Like, imagine trying to keep thousands and thousands of commands. Not even the Pharisees were able to live up to it, and, and yet they placed the burden of it on the people. Jesus continues, verse 5. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. Okay, one translation says, the first part of that verse is, everything they do is done for show. So rather than spirituality at an inner heart level, the religious leaders were just like performing for applause, for show. Literally in Greek, the second part of the verse reads this way. It says, they enlarged their phylacteries and lengthened their tassels. So these religious men evaluated one another by the size of their phylacteries. Now, before anyone's imagination runs wild... (laughs) (laughs) Too late. (laughs) Okay, Uh, let let me explain a little bit. Uh, A phylactery was a leather box that was usually worn on the forehead. And inside the box was scripture that was all rolled up. In fact, it wasn't just any scripture. It was the most sacred scripture. Okay, it's what the Jewish, Jewish people called the Shema. And it comes from the words of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 6, okay, which is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Like this was a sacred, sacred scripture for Jewish people. In fact, Jesus was tested one day. It's a famous story. Jesus was tested one day by a, 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 a teacher of the law. And, and Jesus has asked, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And what did Jesus recite? He, he recited that very thing, the Shema, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And, and following the Shema, Moses implores people to not just hear it once, but to know it, to learn it, to, to keep it always before them, and to live it. He goes on, this is Moses in Deuteronomy verse 6, says, These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts impress them on your children talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up and i just i think that's beautiful it's the idea is keep scripture always before you talk about it everywhere you go that's that's awesome and then moses goes on to say okay tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates Okay, so the image of a phylactery that we just looked at is, is the literal binding of Scripture on your forehead. I think Moses meant that sort of metaphorically, but it, it was taken literally. And many Jews in Jesus' day did this. You guys, in, modern, in our modern day, Orthodox Jews still do this. You will st- you'll, you'll still see this. Okay? And then Jewish men also used tassels as a visual cue to remind them to pray. So they would hang these tassels or these cords off of their clothes as a symbol. And the idea was it's very similar to like a rosary in the Catholic tradition. Um, It was just a reminder to pray. Um, And that's not a bad thing at all as long as it's sincere, as long as it's about the heart. Now again, Jesus says everything they do is for show. And then literally he says... They enlarge their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels, which to me sounds like something a competitive group of men might do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, please notice Jesus is, is not against phylacteries, and he's not against tassels. In fact, depending on how you translate the Greek, Jesus himself may very well have worn tassels. Okay, he's not against visual reminders and aids. He's against religion for show. Their religious practices were, were more about self-promotion than they really were about worship. Okay, next Jesus gives another example, verse six. It says they love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. Now, seating was a very elaborate cultural custom in Jesus' day. Like in a home. Tables were shaped like a U, and the host would be at the head. And so where you sat at the table, how close you were seated uh, to where the host was, like one place or two places or ten places away, that was a sign of your status in the community. And we don't, I'm thankful that like when we go, we don't do a lot of that in our culture these days. Sometimes, sometimes you'll see this kind of thing, we still do this as part of our culture around weddings, Right? Like the order of the wedding party next to the bride and the groom. There's status involved in that, right? The, the best man and the maid of honor are closest, and then it kind of fans out from there, depending on how important you are. <laughs> right? Uh, and then at the reception, right, the people that are seated closest to where the bride and the groom are are usually the most highly respected family members and, and so on. This, it just goes by status. And I honestly think... I mean, Jen and I, we counsel, we do premarital counseling, and then we do weddings, and I think this creates so much stress for a bride and a groom. This is like the one time in your life where you have to look everyone in the eye and rank them. Whew. Like, wow. Okay, but we, but we still do this. And uh, many of you have seen this. Many of you have experienced it. You guys, one of my most memorable wedding experiences was James and Alice Fan, who happened to be in the house today. And their their wedding was an all-day extravaganza. Uh, It started with this pre-ceremony thing at 7 a.m., or maybe earlier for some, and it went uh, all through the day, and the, the reception ended around midnight. Okay, it was a long, beautiful day. And James and Alice are both Vietnamese, and so they decided that in the morning they would have a traditional Vietnamese tea ceremony. Okay, and it started I, again. I think it was right around seven a.m. And it was very formal, like traditional ceremony. So James and Alice, Alice, wore like they wore traditional Vietnamese clothing. What do you what, what do you call what you guys are wearing? Okay. Oh. Okay. I can say Louis or Louise. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was gonna call it like a kimono, but that would have been way <laughs> off. <laughs> I was there, I saw it, and they were beautiful, okay. Uh, So they wore the traditional clothing, and it was just this, the whole thing was just this really, really cool thing for me. Uh, It was a huge feast with both families, and the way it works is they both come together at the, the bride's parents' home, and the groom's family brings a bunch of stuff, literally brought a pig on a stake and walked in, and I was there, like, next to the pig, and we're walking in, it's so cool. Um, and it's all very early in the morning, so two families coming together. It's a huge thing, okay. But here's the judgment have to envision. This is just in someone's home. And so it's, it's way more people than could sit around one table uh, or even in one room. So there was all this hierarchy to it. And um, as the pastor, uh, Jen and I were seated at the head table, <laughs> like with the elders and most respected family members. And we're just like... Hi, and of course, there's. All, that's where all the choice food is. Like all the good stuff is is right there. And it was embarrassing. Jen and I are like, oh, I mean, like okay. Well, I mean, it would be disrespectful to not sit here, but it feels weird to sit here. And I just felt unworthy because. And here's why. Joey and Sophie Bowie, who are like their cousins and some of their best friends in the world, they were seated in the garage at a kid's card table. <laughs> <laughs> And so for, here's what I noticed. Joey and Sophie got real interested in Jen and I. They just sort of hung around the head table talking to us the whole time and just every once in a while going, hey man, you can eat that? But you guys, I, I, I won't forget that. that was, it, was just, it was such a cool day. It was just beautiful. And that tea ceremony was like experience of a lifetime. But there was hierarchy, right? There was status and it was tied to where you sat. And for us, for Jen and I, it felt kind of foreign. It felt kind of odd. I think it probably felt that way to most people. But in Jesus' day, you guys, what you have to get your mind around is um, every social gathering had that. Every single one. Homes, synagogues, school, Everywhere. And what Jesus is critiquing isn't even really that system. What he's critiquing is the way that, that the, these religious men clamored for importance in every one of those settings. This dog-eat-dog way of trying to outclimb one another. Okay, now verse 7, it says, They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. Okay, the Pharisees, they love to be called rabbi, which literally means, okay, we, we think of it as what? Teacher. But it literally means, my great one. And, and, and it was not used for like average, ordinary teachers, okay? Only for the most revered teachers. And so Jesus is, is, is watching, and he's, he, he grabs his disciples and he says, okay, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have... One teacher, referring to himself. And you're all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he's in heaven. Like Jesus is like, God is your father. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. Again, Jesus is saying, I'm the instructor. Jesus is calling out this striving for titles that was so prevalent. Now, please understand... Jesus is not saying that next week on Father's Day, you cannot wish your dad happy Father's Day. Okay, what he's saying is, is that the kingdom of God isn't about pursuing titles. Now, the Pharisees were often called Abba, okay, which is a great, like, 80s band, but also (laughs) it's the Aramaic word for father. Okay, And and they were called that by their disciples who were then likened, To their children. And Jesus is saying, We're family, yes, but God is God is the Father. He is our father, which means your rabbi isn't. Which means that your, your pastor isn't. Now, in spite of his prohibition of these kinds of titles in a religious context, a lot of us do exactly what he said not to do. For example, Take the title Father in certain religious traditions. And and by the way, I have have great respect for our Catholic brothers and sisters. I do. If you know me, you know that I do. But titling a religious leader Father is literally what Jesus said not to do. We are so much better than them. It's just, no, okay. Because I just touched my screen and it went small, and I think that was God's way of warning me. <laughs> I don't. Uh, mm-mm. I'll make you small, pastor. Okay. So here's the thing. Uh, you know, we look at the Catholic tradition with father. The same is the same is true of the word pastor. I mean, we we ought to be really really careful. In the New Testament, Paul regularly likens pastors to like spiritual parents, to fathers and mothers. So he's not scared of the metaphor at all. But there's not one example of anyone calling him Father Paul or even Pastor Paul. Pastor is is a verb most of the time in the New Testament, not a noun. It's something that you, you do, not something that you are. So we should be a bit careful about that word as a title now outside the Catholic tradition you know like we don't usually call leaders father right can you imagine what that would be like at Brickview if that's what we did <laughs> that would be so weird I just imagine you guys walking in going good morning father <laughs> do you not think that would be weird I think it would be weird the thought of that actually makes me shudder and break into a sweat Okay, so now we don't use Father, but we still love the title Pastor. And to be honest with you guys, over the years, I've just grown, like, increasingly uncomfortable with being called Pastor. Not if somebody's describing who I am, you know, I am the Pastor of the Church, that's fine. But, but just calling me Pastor. Um, I, I, I strongly prefer Jason, okay, or even Yo Dude, or even <laughs> Hey Man, all right, to Pastor. Um, now, that was not always the case for me. And um, I, I remember being up at our church in Bellingham, and I was not a pastor yet. I was a young student, but I had expressed desire to go into ministry, and the, the church was, like, highly eager to develop me, which was huge for me. They let me do stuff that I wasn't even close to ready for. They, they let me lead stuff and teach stuff. They even let me preach. And I, and I remember one of the elders at the church, his name was Mike, and he just really liked me, a super encouraging guy. And whenever he would see me, he'd say, Hey, Pastor Jason, or hey, Pastor. And then he would like, give me kind of this wry smile and he would wink. And that title, in that time of my life especially, felt super intimidating, but also <laughs> it felt awesome. I really, really liked it, to tell you the truth. But these days, when I think of Jesus' call to humility and service, I, I don't really love being sort of separated from the rest of the family. By that title. And, and part of this might be like our anti-authoritarian generation that we live in. I mean, nobody wants... Like, people resist being under authority, right? We all resist being under authority. But here's what I've noticed. Nobody really wants to be the authority either <laughs> in our culture. And so, you know, be, you know, that might be it as much for me as it is spiritual growth. You're like, oh, you're so holy. You, know, you don't want people to call you pastor. No, I'm just part of my culture. The truth is, I, I, I just prefer Jason over Pastor. Now, I have a few people every once in a while that will see me, like, at church in the morning, and they'll be like, Pastor. And so I'll, sometimes I'll just jokingly say back, Congregate. <laughs> right, Tony? Yes, sir. <laughs> and here's the thing. That whole exchange sounds really weird. Because it is. And I, and I don't like it. Now, again, I don't know what any of this says, truly says about me and my condition of my heart or my spiritual maturity, but here's what I know. Jesus says that his way is the way of humility. Okay, verse 11. He says, The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, please notice something about this statement. It is not a command. Well, what is it then? It's a statement about reality. He's not saying, I command you to be humble. He's saying, here's how life actually works. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. And if you don't believe Jesus, just read the news. Right, this happens Every single day. Jesus is simply naming reality. And this is true of so much of his teaching, when you think about it. I mean, he says, if you if you build your house on the sand, it will fall. But if you build your house on the rock, it will stand. That's not a command. It's just a statement about reality. Uh, he says, the greatest is the greatest servant. That's not a command. He's just... Naming reality and encouraging us to align ourselves with it. Okay, so, all right. Let's take a step back and just breathe in and out. Jesus is calling out three basic problems in the religious leaders and by default, the religious culture of his day. Okay, and the first is, they placed the burden of unrealistic expectations on people. Unlike Jesus, whose yoke was easy and burdened light, they add, they add to the already crushing weight of life an additional burden of legalism that even they can't live up to. Second, they focus on appearance more than substance. They make themselves not only look good, but here's the kicker, they make themselves look better than they actually are. This is like 2,000-year-old virtue signaling. Right on Instagram or or whatever, but it doesn't it doesn't represent the real person. Okay, three, they desire status over service. They want to climb the social ladder, up and to the right, and they will step on whoever they need to to achieve it. So what happens is, in, in the rest of chapter twenty three, Matthew chapter twenty three, Jesus just goes off on the Pharisees. And we, we, we don't have time to look at all of it today, you guys, but it is awesome. Okay? I mean, it's awesome. And so if you're like, this week, you're like, I should read the Bible. Try. Read Matthew 23. It is awesome. And he calls out the Pharisees hard. He calls them snakes. He calls them blind guides. He calls them whitewashed tombs. And on and on. I, happen to, I love the whitewashed tombs metaphor. Right? He's like, they look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, they're filled with rot and decay. I would not want Jesus to say that about me. But he just goes off with one metaphor after another. And the word that he uses over and over and over in every example, just example after example, all through chapter 23, is the word hypocrisy. Now, it'd be really easy to, for us to take these three problems and make them all about them, right? Not about us. Because we can all get real angry about those religious people who don't do it right. and then we feel self-righteous and really good about, about ourselves. Real easy to make this about pastor types or religious leaders. But, I mean, when you think about it, that's not even helpful if you're not a pastor or church leader. What it does is it just tempts you to point the finger of condemnation. And all that it does, all that it serves to do is to make you more judgmental. So let's get real. All right, can we get real? Let's get real. Can I get an amen in the back? Amen. Amen. (laughs) Thanks, Jojo. Do any of you struggle with these three dynamics at all? Come on now. Okay, let's think about unrealistic expectations. Do you ever place unrealistic expectations on other people that you struggle to live up to yourself? Uh, Maybe it's expecting people to always be there for you when you're not always there for them or expecting them to love you on your terms, always on your terms with no respect to their personality or their preferences or their differences or what might be happening in their life. Or maybe it's expecting other people to never bail on you when you bail on them all the time. Or here's a very common dynamic. We expect other people to show us mercy when we're quick to show other people judgment, right? I mean, right now, we're seeing the emergence of of what people are calling cancel culture. Please tell me you guys have heard of cancel culture. We don't have to go into an explanation on that one. Okay, so somebody makes a mistake, they say or they do the wrong thing, and then they are bullied into cyber oblivion. They are canceled, right? It is, it is hardcore. And in secular culture, here's the, pro- here's the challenge with all this. In secular culture, there is no laid out path for how to become a good person. It is utterly ambiguous. But... When you trip up on the non-existent path, there is no mercy. There is no atonement. There is no forgiveness of sins. There is no clearly defined standard, and yet if you violate it, there is no way back into community and back into good standing. You guys, our culture is as tough as nails. Now, my point here is not to cancel, cancel culture. It's just to point out that this dynamic is alive and well today in all of us, not just religious leaders. They tie up heavy burdens and place them on people's shoulders, but they themselves will not lift a finger to help them. Huh. Secondly, appearance more than substance. Do any of you want to look better than you actually are? Like we we may not wear phylacteries or tassels, but we love our likes on Instagram, right? We perfect our selfies, or if we're a little more sophisticated, we love the letters after our name, right? Or if we're professional, the title from our job or career, or if we're just like more of a hey, I'm just like a hangout person, then we just love to one up everybody over a beer. From phylacteries then to virtue signaling now, most of us, myself included, want to to not only look good, but we want to look better than we actually are. Okay, three, status over service. For us, it's not the seating arrangement usually or the title rabbi. I I don't know what what it might be for you. It depends on your social sphere, right? Like, what do the people you most respect value most? If you're in management at Microsoft, it's one thing. Okay? If, you're, if you're somebody who serves on the PTA at the elementary school, it's something else. If you are a 13-year-old girl, it's something else. For some of you, it might be the college that you went to or whether or not you went to grad school or how much money you make or what neighborhood you live in or how many followers you have on social media. The desire for status can take, take many forms. But here's the problem. The more concerned we are about our own status... The more concerned we are with how we stack up with everybody else, the less capable we are of loving everybody else. And my point is that that unrealistic expectations and appearance over substance and status over service, these three dynamics that are summarized by by Jesus using the word hypocrisy, they are not just a problem for them, right? They're a problem for us. And so, over against the way of the Pharisees is the way of Jesus. Three contrasting concepts from Jesus, and the way that I would label these, are mercy, integrity, and humility. So, let's do a quick run-through. Number one, mercy. Rather than unrealistic expectations, Jesus was full of mercy for people, like full of compassion. I mean, you think of the woman at the well, Or you think about the woman that was caught in adultery. Or you think about Peter who abandoned Jesus in his time of greatest need. Jesus was able to, to hold a very high moral standard and yet somehow show mercy to all. Compassion without compromise. You guys, this is so rare in our world. Okay, number two, integrity. Jesus was actually the same person In public as he was in private. There was no performance. There was no need to impress everyone. There was no fishing for likes on social media to prop up his fragile ego. No gap between his teaching and his life at all. Integrity. And then third, humility. Instead of status over service, Jesus of his own free will became the ultimate servant. Now, one of the most stunning summaries of Jesus comes from the Apostle Paul, Um, and it's in Philippians 2. Now, some of you have heard this passage a whole lot. Some of you have memorized it, or some of you are just so familiar with these concepts. I I do not want to sound like the adults on, you know, Charlie Brown right now. You know, are you with me? Can someone make the sound? Okay, there we go. So... Please listen to these words and think about what they're actually saying, the depth of reality in these. Paul writes this, Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. He says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, the most shameful death for the most hardened criminals. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. And here's what makes Jesus different than any other religious leader ever Jesus perfectly lived out everything he taught. This is, to me, what makes him worthy of worship. This is what makes him the one that I want to give my life to serve. This is what makes him the one that I want to follow and become like. Now, I realize that that not all of you here or all of you out there are in that place. You, You may not see Jesus that way. And here's what you need to know. That's okay. Because the thing is, Jesus loves you wherever you are. But for me, I look at his life and I look at his love and his sacrifice and for me, you guys, there has never been anyone like Jesus. I cannot live like him and yet somehow I can. I fall woefully short of his way every day But he loves me, and he gives me grace, and he shows me compassion. And as I look to him, he just keeps welcoming me back. He keeps drawing me near, and he keeps teaching me new things, and he keeps enabling me to do new things. And then, and this is kind of the mysterious thing, over time, as I learn from him how to become like him, he begins to fill me with all this stuff, like courage, and grace, and peace, and love, just bit by bit, season by season, a little more and a little more and a little more. Now, some people talk as if you make a decision to follow Jesus one day, and then in a moment, everything is transformed in you. And there are some people, like we, many of us know stories, people that have like dramatic conversions, right? Like from being like a, a woman-beating pimp crack dealer to someone that loves Jesus and has, and has a new life. Like, that type of dramatic conversion, it happens. But here's what I would say. That that former woman-beating, drug-dealing crack pimp, that's kind of hard to say. It kind of doesn't roll off the tongue that well. That person that Jesus loves is still deeply in process. Right? And there is still so much growth ahead and so much to learn. And mistakes are made, some knowingly and some out of ignorance. But sin still happens. The reality is none of us live up to the standard of Jesus. None of us are getting it all right. None of us. But he loves and he forgives and he reinstates and he renews. He utterly refuses to give up on any of us. I guess in our our culture you might say it this way. Jesus refuses to cancel anyone. He does not cancel people. So let me, let me close with this. As I read through all of Matthew 23, and it, you guys, it is awesome. I was so moved by the ending of this because really it's a surprise ending. For the whole chapter, Jesus rants and rants about the way of the Pharisees. And at this point, they are plotting. They're deep into plotting to have him killed, and he knows it. He only has days left before he's arrested and taken to the cross. And you can, as he's looking them in the eye, you can feel his hurt, and you can feel the frustration inside of him just bubbling out. And, and, and so this scathing rebuke of the Pharisees that just goes on and on, it ends with incredible tenderness. Let me read verse 37 and try to feel the compassion in this. Jesus ends this emotional speech with these words. He's standing on the hill overlooking the city of Jerusalem with the religious leaders of the city before him. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. You guys, this is one of the most, to me, one of the most vivid and beautiful word pictures of Jesus. It's a picture of a mother hen caught in a farmyard fire covering her chicks, giving her life to save them from the fire. In a farmyard, most animals will run from fire, but there are stories Mother hens just covering their chicks. And when the fire has burned through, the mother is dead, but the chicks are still alive. This is a picture of what Jesus has done for us. Pharisee or not, he is the nurturing compassionate one he sees the fire coming and he covers those he loves and he endures the flames to protect he did this for those who love him as well as those who don't he wants to gather any who are willing under his wings right like pharisees and prostitutes and yankee fans like anybody and he doesn't cancel people ever. Like, when you think about it, he felt this way for those who orchestrated his crucifixion. Jesus had the remarkable wherewithal and maturity that is so rare in human beings to be hurt by the abuse of power from religious leaders, but then not to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Despite very poor examples of religious leadership, Jesus would not give up on the church. Instead, he forgave those who hurt him as he was being killed. I mean, he said, say it with me, Father, forgive them for, you know, not what they do. And we, and we see this, like, that we see in the book of Acts, right? Like, after Jesus is gone, among Jesus' followers, it's, it's staggering, you just you sort of can read past it, but there's, we're told there are many Pharisees among this new community of followers of Jesus. And of course, the most famous Pharisee, a man who, who went out to murder the followers of Jesus, even that guy was welcomed. And we now call him what? Paul, the Apostle Paul. Wow. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. How do we, in Jesus' language, how do we forgive those who have sinned against us? Even if those are pastors from our previous experience or, heaven forbid, from our present experience. How do we forgive ourselves at some level for all the ways that we do not measure up? It's the same for all of us. We come to the cross and we let him cover us. How I've longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Jesus said we we let him do just that. We let him cover us. We we let him bring us close to himself and cover us from the fire and then form us into children who become like him. Children then that like, like Jesus are full of mercy, integrity, and humility. Father in heaven, I'm just, as I think through this, I'm just stunned by the beauty of Jesus. There has never been anyone like Jesus. And Father, as we go into a time of worship right now, I pray that you would just fix our gaze on the love of Christ, whether that's an image of a hen gathering chicks or Jesus laying down his life on a cross, or Jesus just being there and saying, I'm not canceling you. God, would you, would you fill our hearts with, with just the relief of knowing that we're loved by you and we are forgiven no matter where we've been or what we've been up to. And that you are always available for, for those that will draw near to you. God, show us how to do that. Teach us how to do that. We all need to learn. I need to learn. Teach us but would you continually remind us that we are are new in you, we are forgiven, and we are loved. Amen. Well, this morning, you guys, we are going to take communion, and um, the bread represents Christ's body broken for us. It's a reminder, it's a symbol, which, again, Jesus was definitely not against. And the juice or the wine, if you're at home, um, or whatever you have, uh, represents Christ's blood shed, um, and if you've been around Brookview for a long time, you know we used to set up places to kneel at the front and, and come and and. Uh, my hope is we're not all that far away from doing that again here sometime soon, um, but for today, if you're if you're wanting to just spend some time kneeling, I would just invite you to do it right at your chair, and just spend some time praising Jesus and thanking Him, for who He is and remembering what He's done. So, uh, let's worship together. Oh. Um, the, you have the cup and the bread. We're going to call that bread and, that's in there um, on your chair. And um, we're going to worship for four songs, I think. And you can take communion anytime you're ready. So I would just invite you to spend some time in worship. And then when you're ready, um, take communion as you're, as you're feeling led.